Someday soon, you're gonna have families of your own. And if you're lucky, you remember the little moments. Like this. That were good. Cheers. Welcome to a very special edition of Tell Me About Your Father, in which we are talking about The Sopranos. I am Elizabeth Thompson. And I am Erin Hosier. And this is The Sopranos Sessions Sessions because all month long we have some special guests. The Soprano Sessions authors, Alan Seppenwall and Matt zoller Seitz. We'll give you their bios in a second, which are formidable. They are basically the experts on The Sopranos. They wrote this Bible, The Soprano Sessions, that is how many pages long, Busy? It's 470 pages long, and it needs to be. It is a tomb. But it needs to be 470 pages long, just like we needed to devote four, count of four episodes of this show to talking about The Sopranos because The Sopranos itself is an 86-episode series. That's right. An enormous show. And it also is wildly entrenched in the topic of our show, which is the patriarchy, masculinity, fathers, and family dysfunction. Right. And so for the next four weeks in a row, every Monday, we are going to have Tony Tober a little bit into November. And we spoke to Alan and Matt a couple weeks ago before you'll hear this episode. So we're going to be weaving our conversations with them throughout this month. And we will let you know when we're about to talk to them. Erin, let's, before we hear from Matt and Alan, let's quickly talk about why we're obsessed with this show and why we're devoting four episodes to it. So in a very broad sense, The Sopranos is a show about the cycle of family dysfunction. Just when you think you're out, they pull you back in, just like the mob, right? Our families. It's a show that asks the age-old question about nature versus nurture while simultaneously answering with, duh. It's a show that explores the ugly side of masculinity, but also femininity and ultimately humanity itself. We see Tony Soprano as the ultimate godfather. The King of New Jersey, as noted by Matt and Alan, his own family with a little F, and then the mob family is the big F. But we also see him reduced to a scared little boy in the face of his manipulative mother, Livia, and violent late father, Johnny Boy. And then we see all this dysfunction play out in his relationships with his kids. And frankly, everyone (laughs) that he comes in contact with. Yeah, his relationship with his wife, Carmela, and also with 
all of the women in his life as well. Oh, God. So what we're going to focus on this episode is introducing you to those characters, those family members, and, you know, setting the stage for what we will be talking about this whole month. That's right. Should we talk about the premise of The Sopranos really quickly? In 1998, a 39 or about to be 40-year-old Tony Soprano, who is a mob boss of New Jersey, goes into therapy at Dr. Melfi's office, a psychiatrist who has been recommended to him by his neighbors, Dr. Cusimato, after he had a, a horrible panic attack that seemed to be triggered by the stress of basically being a mob boss and also some issues uh, with his mother. He starts, he's also a father and a husband. He's married to Carmela. They live in Caldwell, New Jersey, in a beautiful McMansion. They have two teenagers, Meadow, who I believe is a sophomore in high school when the show starts, or a junior, 16, 17. I think AJ is around 12, 13. Mm -hmm. He's a very, like, American father on one hand. Mm -hmm. And on the other, he is the godfather to this team of sons and nephews, for lack of a better mm -hmm. word, who do his bidding and make his life a paranoid stress ball. Mm -hmm. He is a father figure to a group of grown men who look to him to tell them what to do. There's a lot of um, infighting. There's power dynamics with his own uncle, who's also a family boss. Um, yes. See that unfold later on. Uncle Junior. But yeah, as you said, you really, even in the opening credits of this show, which are famously long, you see sort of the story of this man <laughs> unfold and just smoking this, a cigar. Right. He's driving all over New Jersey to different locations. You see the surroundings of New Jersey change, the socioeconomics change around him, like topography. The opening credits end with this man pulling into the driveway of a very nice McMansion and getting out of a suburban. Right. And when we first meet Tony in the first episode during that first therapy session, as he's trying to dodge questions or finesse questions about his line of work, he's kind of, he tells her what? Tony's in waste management, you know? Waste management consultant. That's the front that he uses. They go as far as to have offices in waste management facilities via paid off people. Right. And there's a long history in America of the mafia's involvement with all things blue collar. With all things blue collar, all things sort of municipal too. And mm -hmm. relationships with the police, relationships with gang members on the streets. And you see all of that on The Sopranos. Politicians, cops, you name it, they're working with the mob or the mob is working with them. The show, we should say, is incredibly funny while also being incredibly dark and mm -hmm. hyper-violent mm -hmm. and truly does get worse and worse every season. I remember you telling me, you know, as you were watching over the months and seeing the progress of the show, I kept saying, oh, God, well, season three is going to be so much worse and season four is going to be so much worse. What were your first impressions of the first season, for instance? 
were you immediately drawn in? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Because it's all of my favorite topics, which is therapy (laughs) and family trauma (laughs) and dynamics. It's, you know, the reason why we started this show is the the impact of family on our lives and the cycle of family. And men and their issues with masculinity and literally defining the patriarchy and the way they parent. So within that first episode and the first therapy sessions, Dr. Melfi asks Tony about his mother and Tony starts talking about his father, and here's that. Now that my father's dead, he's a saint. When he was alive, nothing. Huh. My dad was tough. He ran his own crew. Guy like that, and my mother wore him down to a little nub. He was a squeaking little gerbil when he died. Quite a formidable maternal presence. So busy, like when we started Tell Me About Your Father, one of the early conversations we had is this observation that I've had my whole life, but is really encapsulated in The Sopranos, is when you ask somebody about their father, they talk about their mother. That's kind of happening here. Even though Dr. Melfi asks him about his mother, he immediately starts talking about his father being so strong, right? And that his mother wore him down. Mm -hmm. The implication being that's what she's doing to him now in his whole life. She's a real formidable maternal presence, as, as Dr. Melfi says. Definitely. And why we wanted to do this show is that oftentimes when you ask people about their dads, they'll start telling you about who their dads were in relation to their mother. Um, Right. Because in our culture, mothers are the present ones. We'll talk a lot with Alan and Matt about how fathers are absentee a lot in our lives, not just our lives, but as a culture. And so we know more about our mothers. We have stronger feelings and memories about our mothers and often unless you've had an abusive father, you will, as in our case, you know, we have two dead fathers. Mm -hmm. We tend to look back on the good times. And so we will see how dysfunctional um, Tony's good time memories of his dad truly are. Let's do our guests. Our guests today, we got to talk to kind of our heroes when it comes to recap culture and the authors of Soprano Sessions that celebrates the 20th anniversary of the show starting. It came out in 2018 by the critics Matt Zoller-Seitz and Alan Seppenwall. They both started their careers, I believe, at the New Jersey Star-Ledger, which is the newspaper that shows up every season at the end of Tony's driveway. And I read early on that David Chase for a long time only talked to Ellen Seppenwall and Matt Zoller sites about the show. So they're really seminal figures and I'm going to read their bios. 
Matt Zeller Seitz is the editor at large at robertebert.com at the moment. He is also the TV critic for the New York Magazine and Vulture.com. We've been reading him for years, his recaps and, and psychoanalysis of the show on Vulture. He's a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize in Criticism. In addition to The Soprano Sessions, the book he wrote with Alan Sepinwall, he is the author of the two New York Times bestsellers about the films of Wes Anderson, called the Wes Anderson Chronicles, as well as Mad Men Carousel, The Complete Critical Companion, The Oliver Stone Experience, and TV The Book. And Alan Sepinwall is Rolling Stone's chief TV critic. He's been covering this new golden age of TV from the beginning. First, as a reviewer for Tony Soprano's favorite newspaper, The Star Ledger, and is the author of the books The Revolution Was Televised, TV, The Book, with our friend Matt, and Breaking Bad 101, in addition to The Soprano Sessions. Mm -hmm. Yeah, if you listening to this and you haven't read the soprano sessions mm. get the to your local bookstore matt and alan recap every single episode they go deep their analysis is remarkable it's an english major's dream it really uh, is and at the end of the book which you'll hear aaron and i reference a few times when we talk with matt and alan there's several interviews with David Chase with Alan and Matt asking him specific questions about, you know, why he made the decisions he did on the show. Um, yep. And so when you hear us talking to them about, quote, Chase, that's what those are in reference to. Can you just talk about your origin stories and how you came to be Sopranos fans and how you came to know each other? All right, let's see. The origin story. I grew up in New Jersey. I grew up one town over from David Chase, a few decades apart. So The Sopranos took place on my home turf. I was a Star Ledger subscriber long before I wound up working there. And in college, I wound up just writing a lot about entertainment for the school paper and getting online at a very early day for the internet, relatively speaking. And so that sort of led me to first an internship at The Ledger and then eventually to be put on the TV beat in like late 1996 and Matt joined me a, uh, a year or two after that. And then suddenly there was this HBO show called The Sopranos that involved someone who got the Star Ledger at the end of his driveway every day. Right. And they reached out to us because they needed help making fake Star Ledger props. And it turned out our editor, Mark Diano, had gone to college with Jim Gandolfini that he had actually put the dent in Jim's forehead because they were horsing around on the dorm and he slammed a door in Jim's face. And he had to take him to the emergency room afterwards. And he would always joke like, that guy owes me a, a percentage of his earnings because he's not that big without that dent. Um, and so the, the show comes up and Matt, very smartly, immediately recognized that this was a thing we should be all over. So Matt, take it away. Oh, well, I should first clarify that when Alan says they came to us, he, they, he doesn't mean me and Alan. He means, <laughs> he means the paper. <laughs> yeah. generally like, like fabricating fake star ledgers that was not my area of expertise um but uh what happened was frances edwards who unfortunately is no longer with us who was a publicist at hbo called me and and said hey i just wanted to check in to see if you had watched the pilot of the sopranos and i said i said no because i'm not interested in opera 
<laughs> right, right. I didn't, even, I didn't read the press release. I mean, it was just one of a million VHS cassettes that were sent to me and Alan. Uh, VHS. And, 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 the, and the other, yeah, and the other arts writers back in the day. Yeah, but I watched it and I was knocked out because it was on a whole other level from most of what I'd seen. And I think what jumped out, out at me the most was the patience of it. Like, that might sound weird, but... Um, mm -hmm. even the fact that it's a gangster show and people get killed occasionally, but it was so measured and exact. And the way they started in the therapist's office with Dr. Melfi and Tony mm -hmm. and, and with a, a scene where there's a lot of long pauses, like the first, you know, one of the first things that happens is two people sitting in a room, not talking. Yeah. I hadn't seen that before. I, I can't remember ever seeing that before. And then the rest of the show was that way. It was very surprising at every turn and. I covered it for the first three years on the TV beat. And at the end of year three, which I think anybody who's watched the show will understand why I say this, I decided that maybe it was time for me to get out of the Sopranos beat because that year was so rough. It was so, so violent. So dark. Yeah. New Orleans. It was really, and it was deliberately so. I mean, that was, as David later told me and Alan, he was struggling with the way that people were embracing these gangsters despite the fact that the show had gone out of their way to show you what nasty, disgusting hypocrites they were. Like, it's not to say that they weren't, you know, they were funny. I mean, I think part of the problem was they were funny. And whenever right. a character is funny, you like them. But certainly this is not a Sopranos problem. It was also a Richard III problem, you know? Yeah, yeah. And a Satan and Paradise Lost problem. I like, think it's not a new thing. But nevertheless, he, they were escalating. They were deliberately escalating in season three to show you that these were not people you should be identifying with. You should not be making excuses for them or rooting for them. And I felt kind of gross at the end of season three. And I thought, you know what? Yeah. We don't know how long the show is going to run. What if it runs 10 years? Do I want to be immersing myself in this all the time? Interesting. Because, yeah, because I was writing uh, and doing set visits and doing think pieces and writing about the episodes. I mean, it was like being assigned to cover the New York Giants or something. Yeah. I mean, it was a beat. It was a beat. It was like, you know, Alan's great comparison is it's like we were writing for the Liverpool Post. I was on the Beatles beat. So then Alan stepped in and took over for the final few seasons. And maybe, Alan, you want to take it from here. Yeah, God bless Matt Zeller sites because, like, you, do, you would not ordinarily see this where someone, if you were the rock critic at the Liverpool Post when the Beatles showed up, you would have to pry the Beatles beat like from my cold dead fingers. <laughs> and Matt's like, nobody take it. And so uh, I wrote about the later seasons of the show and up through and including the, the finale that people are still arguing about all these years later. Well, let's play a, a clip from the first episode. So Aaron, we heard Tony in his first therapy session from the pilot talking about Livia and his father. Let's play a little more from the pilot episode and his first session with Malfi. Let me tell you something. Nowadays, everybody's got to go to shrinks and counselors and go on Sally, Jesse, Raphael and talk about their problems. Whatever happened to Gary Cooper, the strong, silent type? That was an American. He wasn't in touch with his feelings. He just did what he had to do. See, what they didn't know was once they got Gary Cooper in touch with his feelings, that they wouldn't be able to shut him up. And then it's dysfunction this, and dysfunction that, and dysfunction my fungal. You have strong feelings about this. Let me tell you something. I had a semester and a half of college, so 
I understand Freud. I understand therapy as a concept. But in my world, it does not go down. Could I be happier? Yeah. Yeah. Who couldn't? So that's very revealing. You'll see throughout the series that Tony is obsessed with the greatest generation, if you will, his father's generation and those masculine archetypes. Um, he's obsessed with Westerns. He'll watch mob movies <laughs> um, just for the nostalgia factor. It's established right away in the show that men are the heroes of every story. And that's why it's very important for him to keep the secret that he is seeing a therapist because that would reveal his weakness to his constituents, if you will. Totally. And, and give away his power. That's right. That's such a good note, Erin, about you see Tony watching a lot of TV throughout the entire series and everything that he's watching is a Western or a war documentary. For um, sure. And yeah, men are always the heroes of those stories. Right. At one point, um, what book does he read? Like The Art of War? Yeah. <laughs> That's the suggestion of Dr. Melfi. Yeah, very interesting. Dr. Melfi then asks him if he's depressed mm -hmm. and after a long pause does admit that he is depressed about, quote, the ducks. And what the ducks refer to are this family of ducks in the first episode of the series has landed and made a nesting spot out of the family swimming pool. And by the time he has a panic attack, the ducks have flown away. They've flown the nest. And he's feeling existentially lonely. And I think it's interesting that he connects depression, which he has a hard time even saying, with animals, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> which will become kind of a symbolic. Yeah, we the see show. animals a lot in this series. You see in episode one how much these ducks bring him joy. It's a mother and, and ducklings in the pool. <laughs> and and even though he gets frustrated and leaves that session, Melfi eventually helps him to see that maybe what's causing the anxiety of the ducks leaving and, and seeing the ducks fly away from his pool is, you know, fearfulness of of losing his own family and maybe not being needed as much by his teenage kids anymore. And right. who, who is he without his family? She's trying to get at how the ducks might represent some form of loss. And he kind of like transitions quickly to, you're right, I'm afraid of losing my family. Which is really, truly the, the essence of what the show is about. I think Tony struggles with that a little bit, too. It's, I think, a very realistic portrayal of therapy, even though, as we'll discuss on the series, Tony often, you know, Melfi will make it very easy for him to draw connections and connect right. them to water. And Tony doesn't jump in the water and <laughs> swim. He's like walks in the other direction and, you know, he leaves the pool. But Melfi really helps him to see that his mom maybe didn't love him as much as he thought. And we can get into that, which is what's established in the next few episodes. And in this first season, a lot is his dynamic with his mother, Livia, who is a lot. She sure is a lot. I mean, we see early on, there's this kind of tender scene where Tony is trying always to 
to get in with his mom, to get her approval and her love. But she is just so stone cold. He brings her some CDs of her favorite songs and the music that he remembers growing up. But because they're not, you know, records, she doesn't want to have any part of it. At one point, he puts one on and tries to dance with her in in the childhood kitchen. And she's just like, meh. And later he tells Melfi that he bought CDs for a broken record. And as you will see, Livia is absolutely a broken record. She really is. She has a few one-liners that she loves to employ to hurt her son and her grandchildren and anyone else in her presence. And we'll hear a couple of her greatest hits right now. He was a saint. Johnny was a saint. He gave my life to my children on a silver platter. Oh, for you. Amazing. One of Livia's favorite catchphrases is the phrase, poor you. It's a great way to shut someone up or to stop someone from actually asking you to be accountable for your own bad behavior. Stop feeling sorry for yourself. You're too sensitive. Boo-hoo. I think today's therapy and recovery would say that that's a form of emotional abuse. Absolutely. And it's an interesting thing because you hear it start to come out in Tony later on. And other characters. Let's transition from ducks to his real human children, AJ and Meadow. So you see in season one, the the character development of uh, and the differences between Tony's two children. AJ is portrayed as a kind of thick skulled young man. He's very clearly not Tony's favorite of the two. He's very connected to Meadow. It's funny because AJ, so Livia is incredibly manipulative Mm -hmm. and we're going to play two clips from episode seven of season one, which is called Down Neck, in which AJ is diagnosed with attention deficit disorder. He gets into trouble at school and it starts bringing up a lot of stuff for Tony around fatherhood and, and being a dad specifically to his son that you see throughout the whole series. The first clip is AJ, who, again, is portrayed as this guileless kind of dummy who goes to visit his grandmother in the nursing home that she has been put in because she keeps um, accidentally leaving her stove on. She's kind of losing her mind and she really guilts Tony about the fact that he's put her in assisted living or into a nursing home. Well, it's a um, retirement community with a nursing ward. But yes, Livia knows it's a nursing home. Livia is not happy and she really manipulates her son and does the whole you're abandoning me routine. Mm -hmm. So that's been established at this point. And AJ goes to visit his grandmother. They're about to play Scrabble. And it's an interesting scene. AJ accidentally or accidentally question mark reveals to his grandmother that his own father and her son Tony is in therapy. Uh oh. They sent me to a psychiatrist all morning. I took like a million tests. A psychiatrist? Yeah, you know, because I got suspended and everything. They sent you to a psychiatrist? Yeah. But that's crazy. That's all nonsense. That's nothing but a, a racket for the Jews. Dad goes. He does not. Yes, he does. 
He does not. Yes, he does. To a psychiatrist? Yeah. He does not. He does, too. But why do you say that? That's ridiculous. Because it's true. I heard him and Mom talking about it. What does he need a psychiatrist for? Is it okay if I take that pair, Grandma? He goes to talk about his mother. That's what he's doing. He talks about me. He complains. She didn't do this. She did that. Yeah. Oh, I gave my life to my children on a silver platter. And this is how he repays me. It's an interesting scene because AJ is so self-absorbed and a kid that he just asks her, can I eat that pear that's in this fruit bowl sitting here and eats it? AJ seems to be the only one on this whole series who is sort of immune to Livia's manipulations because mm. he's just in this this cloud of, of AJ-ness that's both, I think, a symptom of being a teenager, but also maybe because he exists on like another wavelength from the rest of the family members. <laughs> he's also of a different generation. And so he's he's talking with his, I guess, greatest generation grandmother about the fact that he's been sent to a psychiatrist and that his dad is. And that's just an unthinkable shame to her. And in this episode, too, because AJ has been suspended and diagnosed with ADD, Tony is, is worried about him. And he confesses that in therapy. And Melfi starts encouraging him to talk about his own father. You see a flashback sequence with Tony as little boy overhearing his dad, who he really worshipped, telling Livia that, you know, he has an opportunity to go to Reno. And Livia sort of says, uh, it's not a good idea. And then she says, I would rather smother our children with a pillow than let you take them to Nevada or let you take us to Nevada. And little Tony, the child that plays little Tony is a great actor, is terrified. He's listening in on and he's holding his sock monkey doll and he's really afraid. So then you flash forward after the scene to Tony in the nursing home with Livia and he asks her about that memory. Ooh. You remember the Alatories, Ma? Oh, why wouldn't I? You know, they moved to Nevada. They're billionaires now. Oh, that Rocco Alatori, he was a real go-getter. Didn't Dad want to go with him? Your father? No. Yeah, he did. I remember you guys talking about it. Alatar was going to start a business. Dad was going to do a little thing with him. Oh, well, Rocco just got him all worked up. That's all. What is this with all these questions? Dad wanted to go with him. You wouldn't let him. Let him? Mm. What do you mean? You just tell me one time your father didn't do exactly as he wanted. I don't know. Maybe this was his chance to get out. Dad was no choir boy, but maybe with a little bit of support, you know? Oh, Mr. Sensitive now. Well, if it bothers you, maybe you better talk to a psychiatrist. Whoa. What are you talking about, a psychiatrist? Well, that's what people do when they're looking for somebody to blame for their life, isn't it? You're a real stone player, aren't you, Ma? You threaten to smother his children. What does that mean? You know, everybody thought Dad was the ruthless one, but I gotta hand it to you. If you'd been born after those feminists, you would have been the real gangster. 
I don't know what you're talking about. The scene is really powerful because I at least relate to it. And I think a lot of people in adulthood might relate to it of like thinking back to moments in childhood or things that you witnessed where you're like, I need to get to the root of Mm. where this comes from. Why did you do this? Or, you know, and and most of the time it's fruitless. It's a lot of digging with no bone to find because typically the, the person doesn't remember it or doesn't remember it the way that you do. But what you really see is her cruelty because based on the scene that we just played prior to this with AJ, she knows that her son is in therapy and she's throwing that in his face. Which really just sums up her personality for the rest of the show and Tony's issues with it. Yep. The episode College is episode five, where we learn that Tony himself is a killer as he's taking meadow to look at colleges and she asks him on the way if he's in the mafia Mm -hmm. it's also a good scene because we talked about the kind of son that ej is his sort of just obliviousness to the world around him whereas his sister meadow aj's sister is very in tune with the realities of what she's seeing so meadow and tony are driving in a car he's driving her to look at schools and she asks him the following questions Are you in the Mafia? Am I in the what? Whatever you want to call it. Organized crime. That's total crap. Who told you that? Dad, I've lived in the house all my life. I've seen police come with warrants. I've seen you going out at 3 in the morning. So you never seen Doc Cusimano go out at 3 in the morning on a call? Did the Cusimano kids ever find $50,000 in Krugerrands and a 45 automatic while they were hunting for Easter eggs? I'm in a waste management business. Everybody immediately assumes you're mobbed up. It's a stereotype, and it's offensive. And you're the last person I would want to perpetuate it. Fine. There is no mafia. All right, look. Meg, you're a grown woman. Almost. Some of my money comes from illegal gambling and, and, and whatnot. How does that make you feel? At least you don't keep denying it like mom. Kids in school think it's actually kind of neat. It's in the Godfather, right? Not really. Casino-y like Sharon Stone, 70s clothes, pills. I'm not asking about those bums. I'm asking about you. Sometimes I wish you were like other dads. Then like... Mr. Scangarella, for example, an advertising executive for Big Tobacco. Or lawyers. Ugh, so many dads are full of shit. And I'm not. Finally told the truth about this. This is one of my favorite episodes of the season, again called College, where Tony takes Meadow to Maine. It's kind of a bottle episode in that it really is just his time there with her. And when she's looking at colleges, even though they're bonding in between, he is off trying to settle a debt with, ironically, another mobster like happens to be in Maine or like he's hiding out in Maine and Tony gets wind of it and literally just kills this guy with his bare hands. And it's the first time we really see Tony commit murder, you know, as the boss. 
he has captains and and soldiers whose job that is to do his bidding. And we see in James Gandolfini in this episode, the incredible range, like a microsecond range where he is able to go from fun-loving dad who's cool to a spitting, enraged, it's just a raw, he strangles this guy to death, which is is brutal to see. And you're reminded like, oh, no, this guy is really dangerous. Yeah, Chase is reminding us, uh, this isn't the the warm father-daughter moment maybe that you want it to be. But yeah, I think it's a very sweet scene with Meadow. Mm. And Jamie Lynn Siegler, it's great acting on her part because it's all in her eyes. Every mm. time that Tony tells her a lie in that scene, Meadow gives him that look, that come on, dad, look, you're full of shit. And you see that Meadow has a very honed bullshit detector from, I think, growing up as the daughter of a liar, someone who needs to lie. Growing up in a household that relies on a lie right. uh, of what dad does for a living. So she's very in tune to when he's lying. And then to your point, it's this moment of incredible violence when he kills this other gangster who's fled to to Maine and started his own family and has his own little girl who Tony sort of stalks while his daughter is off doing college tours. Tony is watching this guy from afar and and plotting to kill him. At one point, you even think he might let this guy go because he has a little girl who you see Mm. run out to say Tony's watching him in his backyard and she runs out onto the deck to say goodnight before she goes to bed. And you almost think for a split second that Tony's going to see that and be like, I can't do it. But boy, does he do it. Oh, yeah. (laughs) I just wanted to add that one reason why we love this episode is because, of course, we're Mad Men fans and it mirrors an episode with Sally and Don. I believe it's Valentine's Day where she kind of has a similar scene in the car and calls Mm -hmm. him on his his stuff. And Matt Weiner, the creator, showrunner, writer of that show, actually got his start on The Sopranos. He comes in at season five, but it's worth mentioning because there are some fantastic parallels. You certainly see a lot of echoes of how a father's lie reverberates across a family and how it affects his children. You see it play out similarly with Don and Sally. It's really interesting. Hey, it's Elizabeth. I'm just interrupting this Sopranos episode quickly to let you know that Tell Me About Your Father has a Patreon. If you're interested in supporting Tell Me About Your Father, you can head to our Patreon at patreon.com backslash tellmeaboutyourfather, where for just $3 a month, you will get an entirely bonus extra episode once a month. It's our series called The Daily Monthly Dad in which we recap and discuss stories about fathers from our favorite news source, The Daily Mail. Stories from the internet's foremost liquidator of father news that could mean everything or nothing about the men who put the ass in Calabasas, news about the royal family, 
to snake bite victims saving the family dog. We're here to regale you with all of the stories about the patriarchy from the world's worst, best news source. You can get that extra episode at patreon.com backslash tell me about your father. We'd love it if you could support us. Thanks so much. Let's get back to Matt and Alan. So let's talk about uh, Tony, one of Tony's father figures, uh, Uncle Junior, who is an acting mob boss, but also has a strange um, sort of energy with Tony. Yes, Junior is the brother of Tony's late father. And also it should be said, and this comes up in many Saints of Newark, that Johnny Boy goes to jail when Tony is a teenager. So a few times throughout the series, we'll reference um, the fact that he really was there for Tony because he played baseball with him. He played catch with the kid. Played catch. Comes up over and over. <laughs> yeah, we played ca- we played catch together. And I think it's an interesting, Matt and Alan talk about this in the Soprano sessions, but a good kind of portrayal of a dynamic a a boomer with a a greatest generation type which is I was there for him we played catch you know it's a a very limited dynamic in the end how close can you really be to a kid through playing catch maybe you can but I don't think junior was like while they were playing catch asking him about his life junior doesn't have family of his own no junior doesn't have family of his own and the other thing that you see, it's sort of a running gag on the show, and it's referenced in the Mini Saints of Newark, too, that Junior instilled one of Tony's core wounds, to use a recovery phrase mm. or a therapy phrase from now, which is that high school Tony has made the football team, and mm-hmm. Junior says in front of Tony's, quote, girl cousins, that he'll never make varsity. He doesn't have it in him. And that's something that Tony goes back to a few times throughout the whole show. Really bothers him. Junior really fucked him up with that comment. He is also the acting mob boss and knows that he's losing his footing to Tony. And so that is going to set up a plot point where he's actually conniving with Tony's mother, with Livia, who is... The wife of his brother. Mm -hmm. Junior and Livia start to sort of talk to each other about what's going on. And Livia leads Junior to the idea that perhaps it would be a good idea for him to put her son in his place and essentially kill him. It is definitely implied. For exposition, the listener at home, Livia is in her room at the nursing home and Junior comes to visit her. She's really upset because her son has sold the house. That's another reason why she's more than happy to help June take revenge on him or suggest that he take revenge by killing him because (laughs) she's so incensed that her son, while she's been put in this home, has sold the house that she lived in. She essentially kind of, oops, lets it slip that Tony's been meeting with other very high up dons um and and other kind of high up uh, soldiers and the different families using her nursing home as a place to meet and junior who she's speaking to is the boss and so essentially he's finding out right now livia's letting it slip that her son is kind of going around him should have known something was strange when when suddenly 
Larry Boy's mother's moved in here, and then Jimmy Altieri's mother. Three of my capos have their mothers in this place? Instead of living in normal homes with their sons, like human beings. This must be some kind of fucking end move. What do they think, I'm stupid? We'll see. Now, wait a minute. I don't like that kind of talk. Now, just stop it. It upsets me. Or I won't tell you anything anymore. If this is true, Livia, you know what I... I mean... I'm the boss, for Christ's sake. If, if, if I don't act, blood or no... I have to. Oh, God. What? What did I say now? I suppose I should have just kept my mouth shut, like a mute. And then everybody would have been happy. He, Livia. So Tony gets wind, right? Mm-hmm. And basically goes to snuff out the life of his mother in anger. And she ends up perhaps conveniently having a stroke. So season one ends with Livia on a stretcher being wheeled into emergency surgery and Tony chasing after the gurney screaming, she's smiling, she's yeah. smiling. And we learn from the Soprano sessions that through Matt and Alan's conversations with David Chase, that Chase never knew apparently until much later that the show would go on every mm -hmm. season. Mm -hmm. So he planned that that might be the final episode of the series. So that's something we look at is the themes that keep yeah. you know, coming up. Tony goes to, to smother her and it's, yeah. it's botched because she has a stroke. But it's interesting. It's an echo to Livia telling Johnny Boy, Tony's dad, that she would rather smother her kids with a pillow than let them, you know, go to Vegas, which if she had let them all go to Vegas, they could have been billionaires, you know, exactly. and raged towards his mother, understandably. Here's Alan talking about what inspired David Chase to create this iconic character and very specific character of Livia. Yeah, let's talk about Livia and the magic of that casting. Nancy Marchant, what a genius. You said there was nobody else. Like no one else came remotely close enough to capturing what Chase remembered of his own mother than Nancy did. Um, it's just, it's incredible the nuance she's able to create within this like otherwise sort of cartoonishly mm. awful figure, you know, who's just a burden in every scene that she's in. She somehow like finds humanity. She sort of keeps you guessing about where Livia's pathologies are leading her in this particular moment. It's, it's a, just an unbelievable performance. So let's move into season two, because we know that it, it went on. And there's some more family characters that are introduced. Christopher Moltisanti, who is who Tony calls his nephew, but is really some kind of cousin. Carmela's cousin, Tony's wife. And Tony is definitely a father figure. He's, he's in his 20s, I'd say. He's a comic character throughout the series, though he is a soldier who becomes a captain and is an extremely violent human being, just really wants to be a screenwriter and to produce a movie about the mob, which of course is a big no-no, but is a joke that comes up more and more. 
And then the other major character is Tony's younger sister, who's kind of a hippie at the time, Janice, who at the beginning of season two comes to help take care of Livia, or that's what she claims her reason is for being there. And we soon learn that Janice is just as manipulative and fucked up as their mother. Yeah, Janice is a freewheeling hippie who kind of took off and left Tony as a teenager to navigate the world of their mother and all of her awfulness alone. Mm -hmm. Um, Right. She's changed her name. She's like joined like (laughs) a some sort of like free to be me and you hippie commune. Her name as well as Janice is Parvati. Parvati. (laughs) The actress is Ada Totoro, who's the sister also of the actor John Totoro. She's also mm. on the current season of What We Do in the Shadows playing a werewolf. And he's <laughs> awesome. Saying she's so good in this role of playing Janice, who, you know, at first seems like a total foil to Tony. Like she's this hippie. Let's talk about our feelings. Couldn't be any seemingly any different than her brother, who's whatever happened to Gary Cooper and does not care about feelings or wish to um, investigate them. And yet you see throughout the series how similar they really are and how like their mother they really are. Absolutely. But back to Christopher, played by Michael Imperioli, Christopher realizes that he kind of has a knack for writing or that he has a passion for writing. Well, yeah, a passion because he is a terrible writer, no question. And he's the most unconscious person in the show. Yeah, he has a lot of illusions. And a lot of anger and rage because his father died when he was still a baby. So he's missing that father figure. But there's an interesting scene in episode five where Adriana, his girlfriend, buys him some acting classes. And you see him workshopping a scene in the acting class. Yeah, we'll play a clip. He's acting out um, a scene from Rubble Without a Cause, the character of Jim, I believe, which is played by James Dean in the movie, right. who is confronting his father for ab- abandoning him. Help me, Daddy. Daddy, help me. Daddy. You, you can depend on me. Trust me. Whatever comes... We'll face it together. It's okay, Jim. Stand up. I'll stand up with you. And I'll try to be as strong as you want me to be. Poor baby got nobody, just nobody. (laughs) He was always cold. Dad, this is Judy. She's my friend. Seen? I'm freaking believable. God, you were really good. Great job, Chris. How'd you make yourself cry like that? And so Christopher storms out when he's asked that question, like overcome with emotion, but also like suddenly angry that he's vulnerable. Mm-hmm. And then in the next scene we see in the acting class, they're doing a classic acting exercise where it's called A-B where one actor will say the letter A and just use an emotion to say it. And then the actor on the other side of the exchange will answer and say B in a tone of voice. And so the same guy that played his father in the Rebel Without a Cause scene 
is also his partner here. And he goes, hey, and Christopher responds by punching him in the face and then beating him and kicking him when he's down. And it's one of the first times where I consciously realized that one of the draws of the show is that there's catharsis to be found in the humor and violence. Mm-hmm. Violence presented in such a reactionary, absurd way can be laugh out loud funny even while you are disgusted with yourself for laughing. So that's one of the tricks of the show. Totally. Christopher goes home thinking this isn't going to work out for me to act or, or write and throwing his work away. It's a side of Christopher that you see throughout the series. He's actually very sensitive and wounded and he hates to be not only vulnerable, but feel embarrassed. Matt and Alan compared this physical violence with black and white era comedy directors of yesteryear and compares the use of violence as a comedic tool to Abbott and Costello, Laurel and Hardy, the Marx Brothers, the Three Stooges, and that it's one of the instances on the show where that happens and where it actually plays out in a way that's legitimately funny, even though it's not. (laughs) So that's an episode called Big Girls Don't Cry. Let's move on to episode 10. Mm Mm-hmm. When we get another look at the tenderness to be found in Meadow and Tony's relationship, and Meadow comes downstairs to find her dad sitting in the dark at the kitchen table, drunk, and and this is what he says to her. This is the conversation they have. Hey. My God, you scared the shit out of me. Why are you sitting in the dark? I don't know. Like the dark. Sit. I gotta go online. Oh, come on. Sit for a minute. Come on. So what's going on? With what? Whatever. I don't know. What's going on? I just told you. The chat room. Is that it? You know, I love you, right, man? Dad. No, don't dad me. Come on. I wanna know. Do you know that I love you? Yes. I know that you love me. Well, your mother doesn't think I love you enough. Can you listen to her? Everything I do, and everything I've done, and everything I will do, it's all for you and your brother, you know that? I think you should go to bed. I mean, I tell people, you're like your mother, but you're all me. Nothing gets by you. And I know you think I'm a hypocrite. I'm going to bed. Yeah, right, go ahead. Dad, why don't you go to bed? No, I'm going to finish my drink. Can I? Good night, baby. Sometimes we're all hypocrites. I thought what was interesting in that scene was Tony saying to her, you're all me, nothing gets by you. Ugh, I know. And everything I do is all for you and your brother. I actually got chills watching it again when he says, you know I love you, right, Med? Like, 
it's one of the only times he says I love you to anyone and means it you know really, he really means it and and you really see his pride for his daughter I think in mm-hmm. that interaction and I think it's what maybe parents really want where they can look at their children and say I'm proud of you and I instilled the things in you that I'm proud of like, yeah you're, you're like, half me you're, <laughs> and you're and you're the good part you know yeah then he juxtaposes it right yeah Chase does same episode he tells aj that he's embarrassed to be his dad he t- yes he's been really hard on aj that episode and even the episodes before that and tells him that he's embarrassed of him and carmela tells tony that he needs to apologize and to make more of an effort with his son and so tony goes into aj's bedroom with a box of pizza and to apologize I'm sorry for talking to you the way I did. It's okay. No, it's not. I was wrong. And I hope you know I didn't mean it. I said it because all the anger and the frustration the last few days, it built up inside me and exploded. There's no excuse for that. I got to learn to control my emotions around the people I love. I think you're the same way, you know. I think uh, your feelings, you keep them inside, and you and me, we, we react without thinking. That's why I get mad at you, you know. I, I see myself in you. Couldn't ask for a better son, AJ. And I mean that. Thanks. Want a piece of pizza? So, again, it's similar to Meadow, where he tells AJ, he says, I see myself in you. Tony really wants to be a good dad. I think that's important to him. He just doesn't know how to. I think Tony knows what he wants to do, but he doesn't have it in him. And I think the difference between him and like a Don Draper is that Don did have some inner humanity to pull up from the well in the bucket and like draw from. Mm -hmm. And Tony can't go there. Whether or not it's that there is nothing in Tony's well it's a dry well or he just can't access that part of him that's like I'm going to be a better more understanding and loving father to my son Tony in this episode has told Meadow that in a positive way you remind me so much of of me because nothing gets by you Mm -hmm. and this moment with AJ it's a sad scene listening to the audio of it you're like Tony is saying it's not okay that I talk to you like that. Like this is this is good fathering. This is breaking the cycle, so to speak. But I think really what's happening here, and and I think um, Robert Eiler, who plays AJ, is a great actor in this scene. I think what Tony's actually saying is, you and I are fucked up in the same way. Mm-hmm. And, and, I can remember adults saying things like that. I can remember that feeling as a kid or even as an adult. 
when you're mm-hmm. kind of thinking inside, like, no, I'm not. Or like, <laughs> you're not going to manipulate me into forgiving you because you think that we both have this character defect, so to speak, where we don't think before we talk. And also the bigger takeaway for me at that interaction is, Tony, you are the adult. You are the yep. adult. AJ is the child. Um, and I feel like that's kind of lost in that interaction. Tony leaves the room and AJ like shoves a piece of pizza in his mouth and looks sad. <laughs> I know. Um, and you do see that come up that really that Tony is not the adult later. Carmela, Tony's supposed to be making more of an effort with AJ. And she's like, you were supposed to come to his swim meet. What happened? I thought you were making more of an effort. And Tony in a very Livia moment says, well, I asked him if he wanted to go on the boat with me and he said he was going to go to the mall with his friends instead. So I didn't come to a swim meet. Mm, Relatable. So mean. And Carmela is like, what are you, six? (laughs) And it's like, yeah, inside he is. He is. And Matt and Alan talk about that in that scene in their book, too. I think their response to that dialogue is, yes, he is, period. His compass, I think, often operates from a place of a six-year-old. You really see the influence of his late mother on him here. You really do. It's something that we don't look at much. I don't think I've ever really talked about on our show about fathers, which is the effect of mothers on men. and. The ways that they influence um, either through being withholding or wonderful what kind of a parent they will be, which could apply to women and fathers, too, or women and mothers, too. Sure. We know that Livia has had a huge role in who Tony is. We talked to Matt and Alan about this and asked them what they think the impact of fathers is on the show. It's interesting that if you look at it, Fathers are not hugely important on this show. There's a couple of episodes where Tony talks about Johnny Boy, but his father is really not that present in his life. He's not really that present in many saints of Newark either. When I interviewed John Bernthal, who plays Johnny Boy in the movie, he said, like, the thing he noticed in the script is Johnny Boy is always leaving. Like, every scene, Johnny Boy is not happy where he is. He wants to go somewhere else. So the defining person in the raising of Tony is Livia. Christopher's father died when he was a baby, you know, so he didn't, he was raised by a single mother. He didn't really know him. The most important person in Paulie Walnut's life is his mother, who it turns out later on is his aunt. All of these men are really being shaped far more by the female influences in their lives than they are by the men. Even like Tony going, he starts treating Melfi more as his consigliere than he does Silvio. Like if he needs Mm. advice, he goes to her, not to the guys. So it's definitely like father figures have let them down so much that they're almost irrelevant on this show. And we obviously see that Tony is a really crap father to Meadow and especially to AJ. You know, are these characters the masters of their own fate or are they cursed? That's a, that's a subject that I think about a lot. Like Mm. the fact that Dickie Moltisanti who's the main character of many saints of Newark uh, was the father figure to Tony and he was killed in a gangland. And so this is canonical. It's not a spoiler. Uh, when Tony was very young. And then later, Tony becomes a father figure to Christopher, Dickie's only son, and he kills, right. uh, you know, so we have fathers corrupting sons and uh, sons not getting to know their fathers. And it's like this endless, it's almost like I always, 
my go-to comparison is the final shot of The Shining, where we find out that Jack Nicholson was always the caretaker of the Hotel Overlook. Mm. You know, it's like it's this endless, the story never ends. It just goes on and on. Generation after generation, like the missing father, Melfi saying to Tony, we always talk about your mother. We never talk about your father. The missing father. Well, fathers are, fathers are AWOL a lot. And they're, you know, yep. they're, they're with their girlfriends. They're at the strip club. They're gambling, whatever they're doing. They're not taking care of business. But then it's not like, you know, women are entirely blameless in that. Like one nope. of the subjects of the show is the complicity of women who are comfortable in their position and they don't question the <laughs> the injustices that are happening all around them because they don't want to threaten the security of their position. That's also a real thing. It's not a lighthearted show. It's pretty bleak in assessing like what we're about as a species, I guess. The other character that we start seeing developed in season two is the character of Janice, Tony's sister, who's like a freewheeling hippie who's taken off to California and come back to help take care of his mother, though Tony suspects she's really just back to leech off of him and his mother. Yeah. Janice is his older sister, who we also see in Many Saints of Newark, right? They have more of an origin story or just a relationship in general, whereas they both have a younger sister who is normal. We don't even meet her except if she's coming to a funeral or having to deal with the estate or something. And I thought that was interesting that Chase decided to just throw in a normal person into this family, like somebody who made the choice clearly to get out which is always an option. And none of these characters will do. It's very realistic. There's always one sibling that go in an entirely different direction. They moved to New York from Arizona. Um, That's right. They moved to New York from Ohio, as we did. One moment where you really see Janice, even though she's allegedly a hippie, is quite similar to her violent brother and has a short fuse. Well, she gets romantically involved with Richie April, who had been a captain in the family and in the mob, and he has done some time in prison, as they must do sometimes, and he's gotten out. And he's a vicious killer, but they seem to have like a fairly loving relationship. They quickly get engaged, though. And in the penultimate episode of this season they are having a normal dinner in kind of like the middle of the episode both of them are kind of in a bad mood by the way Janice has now stepped in to take care of their mother after she gets out of the nursing home recovering from her stroke so Janice has taken over the family home and she mentions that Olivia is upstairs uh, sleeping because she gave her a couple of nemutols, which are like barbiturate sedatives. Because <laughs> um, yeah. I thought maybe we could just have sex for once. Yeah. And Richie is uh, complaining that he has kind of like a fruity son who's a ballroom dancer and that son is supposed to come for a visit. And, and Janice is like, who cares if you have a gay son? Who cares if he's gay? And then what happens, Busy? Richie 
clocks her in the face and we're not going to say that the reason we're just telling you instead of playing the dialogue is because the sound the sound like engineering on the show when he punches her it's like it is he punches her hard in the face yeah. you hear it and um she's talking about his gay son that he doesn't want to talk about that so he hits her in the face really hard wait and how dare she talk back a woman not allowed and she is standing there holding her face and she's in shock and he sits down and he starts eating the pasta that she had been cooking for him you think that janice is just gonna leave the room but she doesn't what she does is she pulls out a gun and shoots him dead but it is just as shocking as the volume of the punch landing mm-hmm. on her face. It's evocative of the Goodfellas scene when Ray Liotta wakes up and Lorraine Bracco, who plays Dr. Melfi, is on top right. of the gun in his face. Give me the gun, Karen. Give me the gun, Karen. And you almost for a second think this is going to be a give me the gun, Karen moment, but it's not. She shoots him in the chest and then she shoots him again. He falls back in his chair and Livia sleeps through the whole thing upstairs. And what does she do next after she shoots him? She calls Tony and he comes over and cleans up that mess. And he's kind of psyched about it because he doesn't want Janice in the way. He ends up giving her some cash and putting her on a bus back to Seattle. Mm -hmm. And also he wasn't a fan of Richie, so no big deal. Should we say... Something about the opening line mm-hmm. of this episode comes from the last episode of the first season. It's one of the few, I think, tender family scenes where the family gets stuck in a rainstorm and they they hole up at Vesuvio's, the restaurant that everybody goes to on the show. Tony says that line about he starts to get nostalgic and say, one day we're all going to remember or you'll remember when things were good. And you kind of have or, you know, I had hope going into season two, like, okay, Tony is learning things in therapy. He's kind of like looking at the importance of family with a lowercase f. And how that is really the most important family to him. He's trying to remind himself of that. And also act out, I think, or project the kind of family man he wants to be. Yeah, that he really wants to be. And we'll see. We'll discuss in the next couple episodes what that looks like for Tony versus what it means to actually be that person. Yeah. Coming up in the next episode which will be releasing a week from today. We're going to talk about seasons three and season four. And that is when the show takes a particularly dark turn, season three. And so uh, we will be talking to Matt and Alan about that and learn why uh, Matt Zoller Sites almost quit the show. We're going to talk a lot more about Tony's marriage and about his wife, Carmela, who is a great character and who's played incredibly by Edie Falco. Ugh, a goddess of acting. A god of acting, truly. A goddess and a god. That's right. If you'd like a signed copy of The Soprano Sessions, signed by Alan and Matt, go to 
Matt Zoller cites his online store, which is mzsworldstore.com. See you next week. Dun, dun, dun. Tell Me About Your Father and Daddy Issues are created and produced by Aaron Hosier, Elizabeth Thompson, and Matthew Philp. You can always listen for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Google, and anywhere you get your shows. Follow us at Tell Me About Your Father on Instagram and Facebook. Subscribe to our bi-weekly newsletter that accompanies new episodes at tellmeaboutyourfather.com. And for bonus content, go to patreon.com slash, you guessed it, Tell Me About Your Father, where for as little as $3, you'll get access to an extra episode of Daddy Issues every month. Oh, and Apple Podcasts is like the New York Times book review of platforms. So if you can, go there to rate and review us. We'd love to hear what you think.